Show. My name is James Troopney. This is my show. We are coming to you on January the 2nd, 2023. Um, we're going to have a bit of a, uh, a nostalgia week this week. We're going back in time. Um, it was the 40th anniversary of an important wrestling angle that set off a wrestling story that launched a territory to international acclaim. And that story was the Bonex and the fabulous Freebirds, which happened exactly 40 years ago last week. So we're going to examine two shows from World Class Championship Wrestling, which we have looked at a little bit before on the Troopany Show, but today we're going to go in depth to join me on this historical journey from 1981 and 1982. Here's Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a nice Christmas. We got the new year out the way with. There were some interesting additions to the stardom roster. It's been <laughs> Quite an interesting little time. It is. We are in the uh, big shows in Japan madness this week. Um, Glate's got a show. We're recording this on the Thursday. This is the 29th. Glate's got their big uh, version four show from Kurikan tomorrow on YouTube, which I'm sure we'll be covering quite soon. Um, of course, is the great Muta show at um, Tokyo Dome on January the 1st. Um, and of course, Wrestle Kingdom on January the 4th. I suppose we should do a Wrestle Kingdom preview, which we can wait till the end of the show for, because uh, this will be our last chance to preview that show. But we're going to take a history lesson today. And like I said, we're off back to Dallas. We're off to Reunion Arena, home of the Dallas Mavericks, home of the Dallas Stars, and home to the big shows of World Class Championship Wrestling, which they ran every two months for years on end, and specifically at the holidays, at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now, I wanted to do this at Thanksgiving, but I'm glad we waited till Christmas because we could start with two shows that reflect the changes in the company that we had seen in a key period as they got all of their ducks in a row to become a great promotion. Now, World Class Championship Wrestling didn't start off as World Class Championship Wrestling. It started off as big time wrestling in 1966. Fritz von Erich, or Fritz Atkinson, was the top heel in the territory, um, along with Weldo von Erich and various other people as well. Um, it was kind of a heel-led territory in uh, the late 1960s um, until more or less the late 90, early 1980s when David Von Erich, Kerry Von Erich and um, Kerry Von Erich came of age. Um, they ran at the Sportatorium in Dallas, which was their TV taping show, um, and which was would be a popular wrestling venue for years to come. There was a lot of talk about World Class Championship Wrestling a couple of years ago because two very good documentaries came out around about this time of year, one from the WWE and another independent promotion as independent documentary maker who talked about World Class Championship Wrestling. Um, and I got a lot of my knowledge about World Class from those two videos. And because I was a WCCW fan in the late 1980s, on screen sport, we used to get the USWA, which was in the process of being taken, taking over from World Class Championship Wrestling. And he used to get all world-class championship wrestling shows on a, it was a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. So I watched world-class championship wrestling, not when it was a hot commodity, but in the later days of its run. Um, now, there's obviously a load of baggage that goes along with wrestling in Dallas, <laughs> which I don't want to get into yet because it's New Year's and we should be positive, damn it. <laughs> 
But John, when I talk to you about old school Dallas wrestling, what's the things that crop into your mind? I honestly didn't know as much about this as you'd think. Like, I've obviously had a WCCW and the wrestlers within it, but sort of I missed the sort of bought to see this stuff outside of maybe YouTube videos because obviously didn't have a TV channel to watch it. Being a dirty millennial, it's like, <laughs> but you hear tales of the territories. And obviously, I've seen some of the matches. And then you've obviously brought shows up from Dallas and Texas and the other territories. So I've learned more about how the system goes as time goes on. And yeah, I've obviously seen the Von Erickson action a lot across many and many a different country. So it's interesting seeing them more on their home turf. This is true. I mean, if you think back to the historical shows we've done this year, me and John, uh, the AWA shows, it was Kerry Von Eric was on that show. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of influence on on Texas wrestling from the shows that we watched. And Texas was kind of its own territory. It, well, obviously it was, but Dallas was specific with its own territory within Texas. Amarillo was another territory which was run by the Funks. Paul Bosch had Houston. And um, it was kind of like very much built around the stars they had at the time which were brawling tough guys and that was the kind of the the kind of influence they had back in the day the texas nwa texas brass knuckles title was started in dallas which was still a, a live championship um silk is still going to be honest with you and it was basically developed to stop the texas wrestlers from trying to get shots at the nwa world heavyweight champion because they were a bit rough and unseemly <laughs> and it couldn't go on very well in the other territories you see um so it, it always had this reputation for stiff brawling wrestlers um and this kind of reflects that in many senses when you look at these two cards um we're going to start in 1981 this was before um the great tv deal that fritz worked out with local uh, christian tv station which enabled him to get better production values and three camera shoots and all sorts of things we'll talk about in the 1982 Star Wars show. But this is Christmas Star Wars from the Reunion Arena, actually held on the 22nd of uh, uh, January. So 22nd of February 1981. So this is kind of like post-Christmas. The next one is definitely Christmas. <laughs> so this is the second view show. Reunion Arena was an 18,000-seat stadium. Like I said, it was the home of the NHL's Dallas Stars and the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. Um, it was a big sports arena, had lots of music events there, um, and was, you know, 18,000 is a big venue. And doesn't have a listing here, but it was pretty much guaranteed to be close to a sellout. And the main event for this show was... Um, Harley Race, the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, against Kerry Von Eric. But we'll start at the opening match, which was Mil Mascaris, of all people, defeating Killer Tim Brooks, 9 minutes and 55 seconds, in a very much kind of exhibition of a nice, friendly wrestling match to start with. They got a little ill-tempered towards the end. What do you think of this one? Because I know you have been waxing lyrically how much you like Killer Tim Brooks. I mean, he is literally a barrel with limbs. Like, that is so... It's just so funny, because you've got, like, Mil Mascaris, who was, like, the crowning definition of what 
most people wanted Mexican wrestler to look like. And then you have got him fighting a brawling barrel who <laughs> looks like he will kill you. Like, what's not to love? To, to be fair, like most of these people on this roster look like killers. <laughs> this, this is a, this is a fairly athletic looking, you know, killer Tim Brooks for his for his time period, uh, from what I've seen of him. And yeah, uh, most of the rest of the roster look like him. Not particularly ripped. Um, dad bod, I believe, is the phrase, isn't it? You don't want much different from me, anyway. And I definitely have a dad bod. I'm not even knocking it. I just no, 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 no. Interesting to see the differences, and I just found him really entertaining and really intimidating. And as you said, it it fed nicely into this nice match gone sour vibe they were trying (laughs) to build. Yeah, Killer Tim Brooks was a bit of a tweener, depending on who he was wrestling at the time. So obviously, in this match, he was going to end up being a heel because Nomascris is one of wrestling's great baby faces even if he's not that particularly popular amongst the wrestlers, but um, as fans love him, they loved him at this particular point as well. Uh, Tim Brooks would go on to be one of the bookers of the promotion in its latter days as well. So he would have um, you know, a hand in how the office worked. Um, anything else to say about this match? Because it is just kind of like wrestling 101, isn't it? Heel being a heel, babyface being a babyface, kind of outlaying what a wrestling match means to people. Uh, it's very sort of by the books wrestling match but like yeah just Tim Brooks the barrel that fought and very much impressed me (laughs) what's your thoughts on Mil Mascaris I mean I've always enjoyed Mil Mascaris's work and it was kind of odd just seeing him in the first match on a Dallas show uh, a lot of the time, I mean WCW used to do this in Dallas as well, Um, they would bring in luchadors just to kind of get a bit of an extra gate from the local uh, Latino, Latinx population. Um, Because obviously, you know, Texas was once part of Mexico, you know. Um, (laughs) So so there was obviously the Tejano population who still appreciated Lucha, uh, especially around in the border areas and stuff where Lucha was still a mainstay over the border and the main type of wrestling that they enjoyed, obviously. Um, You know, Guerreros, you forget, are from Texas. They're not from Mexico. Anyway, um... Shall we move on to the second match? Yeah. Okay, so the second match is kind of more of what you expect from Dallas. And it is a grudge match between Fritz von Erich and the Great Kabuki, uh, managed by Gary Hart. And it's kind of the classic um, Dallas way to book a match. Gary Hart's the big bad here, not necessarily the Great Kabuki because Gary Hart could then have various big bads that he employs to take out the Von Erics, which is what he spent a large part of his career doing between 1975 and 1983. But he was also the booker of Texas. You know, he was a guy who was a visionary when it came to professional wrestling and presenting people. Basically, Fritz Von Erich was the money man. He knew where to spend the money and who to invest it in. And the most important person in this operation was Gary Hart. Gary Hart was the creative mind behind the company, and he had very simple rules. You get young, fit guys who know what they're doing in the ring, and you present it with a bit of class. And that was the way he did it. You know, and that's you can see the basic principles of that here. The, the story isn't really Fritz versus the great Kabuki. The story is David Von Erich versus Gary Hart. These people, Fritz and uh, great Kabuki, are 
you know, stand-ins for those two people. Fritz coming out of retirement every once in a while, he comes out of retirement for a big pop, um, but he tried to stay out the limelight so his boys could get over. It's kind of, <laughs> it's a kind of nepotism that's kind of a generous nepotism because it was like, it's still his boys that are going to end up running the territory, but at least he got out of the way for so that they could run the territory. <laughs> you know, as opposed to most promoters of this particular time who would just put themselves on top no matter what. Um, though having said that, Bill Watts was doing similar things without um, his children being involved, basically they weren't old enough, in a similar manner in the UWF. And there was lots of guys, in older guys who had gone into retirement around this time in various territories who were brought back for big occasions because maybe they couldn't win a wrestling match, but they sure as hell could win a fight. And that's what this is about. So what's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, I mean, it was, again, kind of a bit of a surprise to see, like, the great Kabuki. And then all of a sudden here he is fighting Fritz von Erich, who looks like a giant by comparison. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's another really sort of intense fight almost there is a lot of wrestling but it sort of devolves into an absolute striking contest and sort of evolves more into the texas style of fighting and it's just yeah it's another entertaining match that you don't necessarily need to say a whole lot about you've got a sort of legend in fritz von eric and you've got kabuki who we obviously can't escape at the moment as you jokingly said i was like oh shit kabuki's on here <laughs> just in his earlier days and yeah yeah it's I don't really like know what else to say it's this is true it, it is i mean the, the the match itself is is kind of a, what you expect you know fritz isn't going to come out with a classic you know head scissors and arm bar wrestling match even though he was a badass shooter because he was trained by Stu hart um but you know kabuki is a character wrestler and you know we, we were joking about this in chat everything we look at this year points you towards muta um i'm doing a show on sunday actually with the guys from the rewind and we'll talk about that then <laughs> i'll explain to you what it is after the show because it's really funny but um it's like oh yeah this happened but yeah, everything kind of like points us towards Muta in his final year as a wrestling fan, you know. Um, Cam Seahawk has done a piece for The Ringer this week where he interviewed a Sting and Sting talked about how much he's talked to Kiyoji Muto <laughs> <laughs> in the last year about his retirement. And that's really cool. It's like everywhere we look, it's all down to Muta. I have a feeling that's probably going to stop by the end of, uh, I think it's January, it's January the 14th, isn't he? He's wrestling, he's tagging with the Darby Allen and Sting in his final match. So maybe then <laughs> we will get away from Muta. But everything this year has been all about Muta. And Kabuki being Muta's spiritual father. Um, and But yeah, this is it. I mean, the end of the match as well tells the story. Fritz does get the win. But David comes down. Is it David or Kerry? I can't remember. One of them. David. Um, David comes down then to attack Kabuki. Because they were always cycling David, Kerry, and Kevin into different stories um, to, uh, you know, keep them boiling up because they were the three baby faces. And when you have three baby face aces, that does make life a lot easier as far as spreading them out over the card so they all have hot things to wrestle for and then bring them together for big angles. So it's very cleverly booked, even if it's massively nepotistic. But can we find a wrestling promotion that isn't nepotistic? 
I still find the hilarious thing though is like this is a naughty Q match, so you expect Kabuki's going to start breaking the rules, or Stu Hart's going to start breaking the rules, but no, it's the Von Erichs that do because they <laughs> decide to bring a numbers advantage. Yeah, that's it. Gary Hart was a gentleman. Gary Hart was like the busiest man in pro wrestling at this particular point. He was an on-screen manager in Dallas. He was an on-screen manager in Florida. He was the championship booker for um, uh, the Southwest in for the NWA, and he was the television writer for Dallas. Talk about a full play. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. As a man, yeah, he was he was there. You know, he was a guy that was just everywhere for such a long period of time in pro wrestling. And you don't realize that, that he was kind of like the ultimate booker at the time. And of course you can write no DQ match does hide the fact that Fritz is not a regular professional wrestler. It means he can get away with a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> this was the, this was the Chris Jericho part of Fritz's run, I think. Right. Maybe, maybe. Sorry. Maybe. Oh, God. Yeah, I thought I was right on that. He was still active in What's the that? 2000s because he, um, he did a lot of managing for the sort of villainous side of MLW. He was managing Loki and Homicide and people like that. Gary, Gary Hart or Fritz? Gary Hart. Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was still going well up until his death, you know. Um, now, the next match on... The actual card was the NWA World Tag Team Championship match. Um, but the next match on the TV taping, which we're going to say instead, was for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. The then champion, Harley Race, I think it was in his fourth or fifth reign, would be his fourth reign, I think, was going up against the young challenger, Kerry Von Eric. Kerry had had a non-championship win over uh, Harley, and in this particular case, he was going for a best of three falls, as championship matches were generally back then. You know, best of three falls was to get the best out of the matches because you could, like, essentially tell a longer story and give the crowd their money's worth. And Harley was his absolute pomp, the complete bump master. Kerry was this young guy, he was up and coming, he had all the tools to be NWA World's heavyweight champion. And you could see why NWA promoters were so high on him in this particular match. He is just perpetual motion. He's got everything going for him. And Harley makes him look like a million dollars all the way through this match. What's your thoughts when you thought about when you saw the first part of this one, John? Yeah, I I had high hopes for this match and I wasn't disappointed. Like like I always get the high like the Von Erics hype. They were really good at what they did. And Kerry Von Eric was no exception, and he just pairs well with Harley Race because he can match the sort of stiffness and brutality, but again, he also brings something new to the table. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like the first offensive move that Kerry pulls off is a press slap. Like he's not mucking about. <laughs> You're they're after it from the very first moment, and Harley's on the back foot. You know. Through most of this match, this is the bit that always like amazes me when you watch Harley Race. Harley Race rarely was on the offensive in any of his championship matches with anyone. And he was rarely the babyface, but he always looked tough as they come and still won anyway, which I suppose is the sign of a great champion and how to make yourself look like a great champion. 
the only match where I ever saw him like really kind of like go on an offensive onslaught was funnily enough against Mil Mascaris in All Japan Pro Wrestling where the crowd turned on Mascaris for no particular reason. They loved Harley. So Harley went after it and he batted him. There was blood everywhere. <laughs> you wouldn't have thought it would happen between them two. You just thought, oh, this will be a nice little bump match, you know, a little 15-minute match going both over. No, no, they went for it. It was main event. They were having it. And there was there was blood and there was punching and there was referees with their hands in the air. It was, wow. <laughs> You'd love it. I'll have to find it for you and show you. But this is what, like, watching Harley now, it's all the small stuff he does. You know, like, he makes the most out of taking opportunities. You know, like, Kerry misses an elbow drop, and Harley is the first to capitalise on that and, and, you know, really puts go to town on it, even though it ends up in a sleeper. You know, he's he, he's kind of always bouncing back, no matter how much punishment he takes. And for someone like Kerry, who is literally just... Uh, the ever go forward as taking old British wrestling nickname. Who's a guy who just never takes a back step. They, they were perfectly matched, really, aren't they? Yeah, it just they managed to bounce off each other to sort of make this incredibly interesting title match, even if it ends in a double count out, because of course it's gonna end in a double <laughs> count out. Well, to be fair, like the first fall ends in a disqualification. So at that point, Kerry's lost the championship anyway, unless he gets two pinfalls in the last two falls, because you can't, the, the NWA championship could not change hands on disqualification back then. So because the because Kerry lost the first fall by DQ, that meant the other two falls he had to win by pinfall. He could still win the championship, hence why they kept going. <laughs> And he's lucky under Mount Heaven rules that have been it. If you get disqualified under Mount Heaven rules, that's it. You go home. So that, that was that was one thing. It's nice to see that Bronco Lubich was always that slow. I mean, he's glacial. <laughs> it's, it's, I, uh, Bronco Lubich, I yeah, is part of possibly the worst referee I ever saw. Um, he was a bit quicker than he was when I was watching him in the late eighties, but it was Mick Foley who said. He got down on all fours to count a pin like someone who was trying not to break a fingernail. And there's there's elements of that creeping in here. <laughs> I wonder if the ref had bit, was supposedly dirty or if it was just a case of, no, he's just that slow. Oh, no, he's just incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> but they've been lying down for like five seconds, but surely you should have counted by now. No, um, no. No, we're just having a moment. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there was a, that was, a, was one of the stories in um, in uh, Mick Foley's book is Bronco was in charge of um, uh, pay at the end of the night he was the one that handed out all the pay in Dallas and uh, he went up to Cap- Mick Foley and said hey Captus do you want to draw and Mick genuinely thought he wanted to like t- take out a piece of paper and a pencil and draw something. <laughs> so Gary Young went, now he wants to see if you want to borrow some money. Which <laughs> I thought was great, you know. So that's where in wrestling power wants to draw is, you know, you take you take some money from the promotion against future earnings. And it was like, because like, Bronco was going, you just got here, you might need some money for the hotel, would you like a draw? And Mick was like, no, I would not like to draw anything. I'm quite happy as I am. <laughs> but if you would like to sit down and have a draw, we'll do that sometime later. 
But yeah, uh, yeah, Bronco Bronco is just, I suppose he's one of those characters that made Dallas wrestling, I suppose. Um, but was the feebles of the company. You will, you would also David Mercer, who would be like the legendary commentator, is um, ring announcing here. I don't know who the commentator is on this, and the commentary is not bad. It's not awful. It's pretty good. Um, let's see if I can find anyone. Is there anything on the TV show? No, there isn't anything on the TV show listings to say who was actually um commentating on this but they were all right i know he quit because um mark lawrence took over by the following year which we'll talk about mark lawrence later um but yeah no this match was great and it's an nwa world heavyweight championship match, and it really matters you can tell it really matters and it matters to the fans and you can tell how over the von erics are in in dallas i mean we didn't mention it but Fritz struggles to get to the ring because he has to sign programs all the way to the ring. And whilst the announcements are going on, he's constantly signing programs. And Kerry has to physically manoeuvre himself to the ring. And all the way through this match, all you hear is screaming teenage girls. This is like the Beatles uh, in 65, that kind of level of hysteria, Um, which is just, you know, people say that, wrestling doesn't have a female audience it absolutely does <laughs> you just got to pitch it right and fritz was not stupid he knew what he was doing he was one of the best pr men in pro wrestling history i was always laughing because every time like one of them was making an entrance commentary but like and here we go again look at the crowds trying to get a handshake and autograph and i'm just thinking who the fuck is signing autographs in an entrance way and then the camera comes <laughs> up and I'm like oh shit they are actually signing autographs. oh yeah no this is this this is like this is can't go to mcdonald's on a friday night levels of fame i mean they're not like um this is the start and it gets much worse than this um but yeah and, you know, this match goes out of the ring. There's all sorts of brawling to it. It's not a classical wrestling match. It's very much of the Dallas style. But Harley knew how to get the best out of this. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about this match? Yeah, go and watch it. It's really fun. Yes, you should. I think it's it may be the best example of Harley at work with a younger wrestler that he's trying to get over. Would you agree? Yeah, actually, it's yeah. As you said, it's it's an odd example. Like it, it sort of shows that Harley Race never needed to really be on the offensive to look like a like a tough as hell champion. He'd just take a load of shit and then dish it right back out the second he got an opportunity. <laughs> and if there was one thing to make teenage girls in Dallas happy in 1981, it was two Von Erichs was better than one. And in the next match on this particular card, the NWA World Tag Team Champions, Hercules Ayala and uh, Ali Mustafa, defend their championships against the Von Erics unsuccessfully, David and Kevin. Um, I love Hercules Ayala. Um, he's ace. I've never seen Ali Mustafa, and he doesn't even have a cage match profile, so that'll tell you how popular he was. But he's still got an NWA Tag Team title. This will be the Dallas version I'm expecting. I'm just. Uh, yeah, this was from this was purely used in world class championship wrestling. Um, and which the title, this particular title was founded in nineteen eighty two. Um, the first chance were Kerry and Al Madrill 
And it's just a list of Texas names. Frank Dusick and Bill Irwin, Kevin Warwick and Terry Orndorff, Chang Chung and the Great Kabuki, the Von Erics, and then Aya and Hercules will Aya. This is funny because like it says the Von Erics won the title in July of 81. Oh no, they won it. Yeah, is the thing, right? <laughs> Chang Chung and the Great Kabuki had the belts in October. So Al Mustafa and Hercules Aya must have oh I see. They took them off they they took Chang Chung and the Great Kabuki. It's not actually a list of chronological list, it's a list of championship race. Um but yeah, so Aya and Mustafa beat Gary Hart's men in a heel on heel matchup. And then in this one David and Kevin Von Erich take the titles in actually a pretty straight up professional wrestling match. There's there's very little out of the ordinary. This is about hot tag wrestling, you know, standard Southern tag team wrestling that was kind of a mainstay of the 80s. This is kind of precursor of what happens with Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, and all those tag teams in a, a much less smooth way because there's not as much sweet double teaming as we go on with those tag teams. It's, it's kind of like, four guys having a wrestling match but the psychology of it is beautiful what's your thoughts on this one john yeah it was pretty standard example of tag team wrestling we we've talked about like hercules ayala before when we covered uh wwc and how he was sort of one of the most reliable guys and again it's just a case of incredibly reliable man in the match he sort of keeps a lot of it together you've got and then you've got the von erics being von erics it's it's perfectly fine. It's as you said. It's, there's a lot of hot tag and a lot of psychology in it, but oddly enough, not a lot of tag team stuff. It wasn't really the fashion of the time, though. I suppose. I mean, you think about like the best tag team, the best technically gifted tag team in the world at the time. Dare I say it? Would be the Royal Brothers in the UK because they were on fire. And they, they kind of did a load of double-team maneuvers. They really couldn't get away with them, the Mount Evans rules. Um, and they were the first kind of, like, sweet tag team deal that I saw. But, the you know, you look at teams at this particular time, and it's four guys having a wrestle match, and you get a double drop kick in there, so you might get a double shoulder smash. Shoulder? Shoulder smash? Shoulder smash, but that's about your lot. Double clothesline. <laughs> you know, a lot of double things, but not an actual, like, you're not going to get your best melts forever, are you? So, um, yeah, the, the 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 land of the duo tag team hadn't really come along yet. Um, interestingly, around about this time, the hottest team in the Carolinas would have been Greg Valentine and Ric Flair, um, who were, you know, they were kind of coming up as the top tag team in the South, really. And were the other NWA tag team champions because there was, of course, there wasn't just one NWA World Tag Team champion because <laughs> um, that would have been difficult. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, oh, this was uh, this was good though. It was solid. I enjoyed this a lot. And just, yeah, I I think I think um, uh, Harley and Carrie beat it out for technical excellence and storytelling. But this was still like an abject example on how to get your two top baby faces over in the tag team match. Yeah, it, it kind of shows that the sort of recorded for TV version was in a really weird order. It was. Because <laughs> we miss out a match. Chang Chung defeats Bruiser Brody. 
which must have been intriguing. Um, and I'd like to have seen that. Um, and the main event was at the end. So you've got the first match, the, the second match, the last match, the third match, and then we go to the fifth match while missing out the fourth match. Everybody with us? Let's move on. <laughs> the funny thing is, Cage Match doesn't even have the entire list of participants for this battle royale. No, it just says there's eight of them. <laughs> and there's more of them than that. I'm sure there is. Yes. I'm looking at it now. I've got it on video. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's ten of them. Who we got missing? Oh, I think it was something Nightingale, not Nightingale. Well, uh, Jose Lothario's in this, and he's not mentioned on that list. Jose Lothario, the guy at Train Sean Michaels. So, you know, he's quite important. Um, Al Madrill's in this, and he's not on that particular list. Killerton Brooks is in this as well. Is he on that list? No, he's not on that list either. Um, Hercules Alaya and um, Ali Mustafa are in this, this match, but the Von Erics is listed in this match, but they're not in it. And the Great Kabuki's listed in this match, and I'm sure he's not in it either. <laughs> I think Kabuki's in it. Pretty sure you see Kabuki in it. Let me zoom in a little bit, see where I can see what's going on. I've got it running at one and a half speed in the background, so it kind of goes along with what we're, what we're talking about. It zipped things along nicely. Oh, the uh, Jardine, the spoiler, he starts off with, he kicks off with Bruiser Brody to start with, and Bruiser kicks him out of the way. Um, what else is there in there? Oh, Brian Adonis is in there. Um, oh yeah, uh, is it? I oh, know. I'm Mark Sharp's in the next one, isn't he? So yeah, there's quite a few kind of like standard Texas names you expect to be in here. Um, is that Bill Irwin in there? Yeah, Wild Bill Irwin's in there as well. He's a, he's a proper Texas name. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. This, I mean, it was like kind of a fun match. Also, pinfalls counted in this match as well. It wasn't just about over-the-top rules, which always makes it more interesting for me. I like them all Japan rules. Yeah. It's always fun when you can pin your opponent in a battle royale as well as just lob them over the ropes. They should bring that in for the Royal Rumble. (laughs) (laughs) Make things go a lot quicker. (laughs) Did they do that for the MLW Battle Riot? I don't know why they've never done that for the Royal Rumble. It was just, it's WWE rules. It's the same as, like, why cage matches are always tend to be escape rules in WWE, which is the traditional, like, Northeastern Territory kind of rules always kind of stuck with them, I think. They don't tend to play around with, like, basic conventions. Sorry? That always cracks me up, because whenever I do a cage match in the sort of WWE games, I nearly always win by pinfall, because I can never be bothered with the climbing mini <laughs> <laughs> I've had this argument many times through the years, especially with WWE fans who say, ah, oh, well, yeah, but it's the drama of it, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, but surely the person that runs away is a coward and you're trying to get people over for their heroism. So it only I really think works. the only reason that they have it as escape only is so people can jump off the top of it. And then it was like, oh, but you could have escaped. And it's like, ah, oh, but he chose to jump off the top of it and then he loses. Or she loses, or whoever loses. It's like... Now, I think you can. But honestly, back in the day, Bruno Sammartino was definitely not climbing to the top of the stage and jumping off under any circumstances. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bruno had more sense. So, <laughs> and creative control. So, like, no, we won't be doing that. 
will go out the door like a normal person. And actually, all of the cage matches I saw Bob Backlund in, he always went through the door as well. So, yeah, it just struck me as odd. It's like, here's Bob Backlund and Bruno Sammartino, two never back down babyface heroes who are escaping through the door like cowards. Always weirded me out. But anywho, worked for them, clearly. I was wrong. <laughs> nice bit at the end, Killer Tim Brooks and um, uh, Bruiser Brody having a right go at each other at the end of this battle royal as well. As oh, Tim Brooks. That was beautiful. It was. Um, and um, Mustafa Ali and Tim Brooks uh, beating up on Jose Lothario to get rid of him. And then you get down to the final three. And you know there's only going to be one winner at that point, don't you? Because it's Bruiser. Yeah. <laughs> he's had one loss tonight he's not having two no, no. <laughs> oh bruiser roses bruisey bro bruiser brody stories uh my favorite is the like have you heard the like speaking of cage matches you heard the lex luger one yes yes it's one of my you, favorite things for those of you who don't know bruiser was having problems with the florida booker um and uh, was booked in a main event match for the Florida Championship against Lex Luger. And Lex and Bill Alfonso, who was the referee, had no idea what was going to happen. And Bruiser uh, <clears throat> came to the ring. Everything went a bit wild, and then Bruiser ran off. Um, and uh, when they got back to the dressing room, Bruiser apologised to Lex. Sorry about that, brother. <laughs> Not your problem. <laughs> it was like, well, yeah, you're Bruiser Brody. You That's can be what favorite. you like. That's my favorite bit because Luca's like, did I did I do something wrong? Please tell me I haven't done something here. wrong. Brody's just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely on the promoter. My second favorite cage match from Florida story. My first favorite one was Barry Windham and Lex Luger because Barry Windham got booked in Florida basically to look after Lex Luger and bring him along as a star. Uh, and they got booked in a cage match together, and Bill Alfonso was refereeing that one too. And um, in the initial lockup, Lex was not very experienced and was pretty clumsy. And in the initial lockup, Barry goes through a waist lock, and um, Lex kind of like spins around to find out where he is and clocks Barry straight in the forehead with an elbow. And of course, Barry just starts bleeding straight away. <laughs> Like literally, like three seconds into the match, and um, Barry looks at Bill and go. Barry looks at Bill Alfonso and goes, "What do we do now?" Bill was like, "I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to do?" He's like, "Well, we're gonna have to get. We're gonna have to start working, aren't we?" So they had to have the bloodiest brawl you could possibly imagine just to get out of dodge because Lex had accidentally bust Barry open by mistake. <laughs> but there you go. That story's on the Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen DVD box set if you want to go up for it. Anyway, let us move on. It is 1982. I am eight years old. Yes, I, I was. it was Christmas. I got Lego, like most Christmases. Anyway, we're back at your Union Arena, and we're back for Christmas Star Wars. Literally on Christmas Day, 18,000 sellout at Reunion Arena with a main event. Our no disqualification steel cage match with Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Eric with your special referee, Michael Hayes, which will become pertinent later on. However, let us start the show at the beginning of the TV taping, um, which is for um, 
I just get this straight because I'm in the right place. It's for World the class N- World Six-Man Tag Team tag Team Championship, team. which was the semi-main event but opened this show. <laughs> which will tell you how we're getting on with this particular card. The Fabulous Three Birds up against Ben Sharp, Mike Sharp, and Tom Steele um, in the vacant for the for the vacant and newly created World Class Six-Man Tag Team Championships. The Freebirds get to the ring. Buddy Roberts has got caught up in snow somewhere in Georgia. He couldn't make it to the ring. So David Von Erich volunteers to come help out his brothers, the fabulous Freebirds, who had been supporting the Von Erichs since they arrived the previous spring. Terry Gordy and, and Michael Hayes were the... Well, basically, you had Terry Cordy, who was the brawler and the enforcer. You had uh, Buddy Roberts, who was the worker, and you had Michael Hayes, who was the mouthpiece. They were the perfect three-man tag team. And much in the same way, the David Von Erich was the talker, Kevin Von Erich was the worker, and Kerry Von Erich was, you know, um, the body man. Um, so they were kind of like evenly matched up to start with. But this match shows you how connected the Von Erichs and the Freebirds were. I'll be honest, Ben Scheidt, Mark Sharp, and Tom Steele were never, like, you know, going to be breakout champions, as Ben Sharp is actually Killer Kaninsky, <laughs> um, the former, the son of Gene Kaninsky, um, who changed his name whilst working in Dallas. Mike Sharp is, I am Mike Sharp, the hero of many uh, Madison Square Garden job match his legendary opening match feud with Special Delivery Jones, which made the garden purr with mild entertainment in the 1980s, uh, will be well fondly remembered by him. I honestly never heard of Tom Steele before. Uh, I saw a look at him on the cage match. Oh, Johnny Mantel. I have heard of him. Why is everyone wrestling under different names? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he was uh, he was the brother of Ken Mantel. Oh, he changed his name to get away so that they didn't, didn't be accused of nepotism in World Class Championship Wrestling. What a brilliant idea. Ken Mantel was the referee, <laughs> the senior referee in World Class Championship Wrestling. Um, this is kind of the setup for the major angle for the show. Um, obviously, the 1980s Freebirds were kind of a force of nature, just like the Von Erics were. What's your, what were your thoughts going into this match from what you knew based on reputation? I was kind of confused. I'll be <laughs> like, wait, don't these two groups hate each other? Weren't they the oh, subject no. of some of the nastiest tag matches on the planet? They, yes, but we haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> Literally yeah, about I, half an hour later. <laughs> yeah, I, I always forget time periods and I'm just thinking to myself, it's like, I swear these two teams hate each other and they're helping each other here. That's incredible. And it's like, War be anyone who has to fight that combination. True. Plus, I just love seeing Terry Gordy. I love Terry Gordy as well. Bam Bam is just, even here, like, you know, he's like 17, or he's like 18 and 19 years old, and he just looks like the part. You know, he's got poise, he's got start, he's got status. You know, you can see everything about him says pro wrestler. He's constantly thinking and moving and intimidating. Just his look, his, you know, the way he reacts with Michael Hayes. He's just outstanding. And he's also in this match, like David Von Erich as a babyface is just a beautiful thing to see. 
you know, he had the backing to be NWA World Heavyweight Champion at one point if he had not sadly passed away very young, which he did in a couple of years' time, which is always a bit when you're watching these matches, you're like, oh, <laughs> it would have been amazing if he'd lived because he would have been wonderful. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it's because it, he, he's, he's not as ripped as Kerry and Kevin are, but he has so much character and he has so much charisma. He's oozing charisma. You know, and I think about the big fuse he had with, um, I suppose the biggest like well-remembered singles feud he had was with Ronnie Garvin, funnily enough, a future free bird, not Ronnie Garvin, Jimmy Garvin, a future free bird. Uh, but him and Jimmy had a brilliant feud. Uh, and, you know, it's like he was such a over guy and, you know, even if it wasn't his dad as the promoter, he would have been, you know, a, a superstar anywhere he went. And the other it's... thing to take into account with this is that this would have been David Von Erich's second match of the night after defeating Bill Irwin in a yeah in a match that wasn't aired. <laughs> <laughs> Which an important match for the NWA Texas Heavyweight Championship, you know. That's that's the that's that's the championship. Chase Owens has recently retired, <laughs> having been, having won the Texas Heavyweight Championship and never defended it in each Um But yeah, it, it is. Yeah, he and he would have. It would have been a pretty. You know, Bill Irwin was a handful. He was a good wrestler. So this is like putting like you know pressure onto pressure. And David looks as fresh as a daisy, doesn't he? Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> It well, really I guess is. that's just the cardio of the Von Herrick. <laughs> Very true. Um, now let's talk about production values because they've made their deal, they have a TV deal, and all of a sudden we have a three-camera shoot. And we've got um, labor, legendary um, uh, um, <laughs> commentator David Manser on, on commentary. You've got a three-camera shoot. Mark Lawrence has now been hired by WCCW and is the ring announcer for the evening. Um, uh, it's it's altogether a much more professional and slick-looking operation, isn't it? Yeah, it, this show is a lot easier to watch. Not that there was a real issue with the one-camera setup. The three-camera setup is just much smoother, and it grants you a lot better view of what's actually going on. Yeah, they also did all sorts of things like um, they had the cameras in the ring at certain points during rest holds and stuff. And they had much better microphones and micing up the crowd so you could hear the crowd and all of those screaming girls. And it was kind of like something that WWE would do much later on. They haven't turned the house lights up yet so you can see everybody, but it does feel like you want to be there. I mean, looking at the size of the rifle mic, the sound, you know, um, uh, Bronco Lubitsch is going to trip over it. <laughs> it's massive. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're really trying to capture the whole event, which is something they haven't really managed to do. Not that, Like you said, it wasn't bad. It's just kind of production of its time. Now it looks like a modern television production. Yeah, it feels like they've sort of... You can see the actual evolution it's not just a case of them saying, oh, yeah, we got a TV deal and then keeping the same setup. 
regardless. Yeah. They they got a TV deal and they made the most of it to sort of show that their prod the product is evolving as well as the sort of business side of things. Oh my god, did I forget how like hilarious 80s television openings look like? <laughs> giant globe and a bunch of kin video clips plastered on top of it with generic do 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 music. Still kind of giving me goosebumps because it kind of reminded me of watching it in my childhood. I must admit, they, that was the main thing for ten years as well. They didn't change it. I think that's the problem. They didn't really. I mean, you know, apart from the fact the drug use, loads of people dying, and various other things that went wrong. Um, but you know, one of the things is they they reached a peak, but they didn't really expand beyond that, which they should have done with their production values more than anything. But anywho, um, so yeah, this this is a really great match. I, I would like to, I did mark out for Iron Mike Sharp stalling because he is a master staller. He'd n- never do anything if at all possible to get heat and his ability to stand still and get heat is, is, a, is a sheer work of 1970s genius. I found it a bit long. Like when it was good, it was good. But my God, it seemed to go on forever. <laughs> it is, but it kind of like that. That's kind of Hayes as a baby face, though, as well. When Michael Hayes is, is working baby face, everything does take forever because he milks as much as he possibly can out of everything. And because Sharp is trying to milk as much as he possibly can out of everything, then you that, that's what makes it seem long. I think by modern standards, if they tried to do that in a match now, people would be having words because it just doesn't work for a modern audience. But back then, the fans would stand still long enough for it. I just remember watching, and then I was like, I'd look away for a second, it would still be the same thing. It would still be a stall or a milking thing. I'd just be like, oh, God, it's still going. Come on, do something. <laughs> I get that this is the time period, but do something, please. There's still another hour and 20 minutes of this show to watch yet. Shall we move on, then? For the sake of your sanity. <laughs> I think it was a good match, but they could have probably carved 10 minutes off it. The match actually lasts for about 24 minutes. So for a semi-main event, that's pretty long, but it was a six-man tag team match. Um, the Freebirds win the championship, and David Von Erich gives up his place in the championship team to Bobby Roberts, saying it's a brother's team, so therefore it should be brother championship. And I would defend it with my brother's, so I'm giving it up to your brother, Buddy Roberts, because he saw the three birds as a family. And that's the way they were portrayed as brothers from another mother. And that's an interesting telling point about how much, even up until that moment, the three birds were baby faces. They were beloved baby faces in Dallas. But shall we move on? And we're going to move on to the, hang on a minute, <laughs> the fourth match on the card, yeah, fourth match on the card, which is now the second match on the TV taping. Bear with us. I will go at this point. Brian Adias defeated Frank Dusek. Al Madrill and Jose Lothario defeated Checkmate and the Magic Dragon. I believe the Magic Dragon was, i trying to think, uh, Mizaki Kobayashi. Um, yeah, I thought it was somebody else, but it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he was one of the 
Gary Hart's promotion. Obviously, Gary Hart had strong links with all Japan Pro Wrestling because of the great Kabuki, and he ended up like looking after a load of talent in Texas um, and New Japan as well in the end too, as you can probably imagine, because you know the great Muta ended up in Dallas. Anywho, we're on with this card. Um, uh, Lone Eagle defeated Little Tokyo um, in a small person's match, and then we get to this uh, first championship match in, in the evening, the NWA America's title. This was the secondary belt in Texas behind the tech. Well, I suppose it was the top belt in Texas, really, uh, behind the World's Heavyweight Championship. Kevin Von Erich defeated King Kong Bundy by disqualification. King Kong Bundy was still a heel, but in the laid storylines of Dallas, he was actually in dispute with his former manager, Gary Hart. So Gary Hart was not a ringside for this match. And I remember watching it on TV at the time. They, I used to watch World Class Championship Wrestling in Dallas on the Living Channel, which was a women's channel. And they had stuff from around about this period, from 1982, um, um, on Saturday afternoons. And I remember watching a press conference with Gary Hart and King Kong Bundy. And King Kong Bundy was complaining that Gary Hart was taking too much of a cut as a manager. And um, he said, where's my Lincoln Continentals? Why aren't well, you're driving around the Winter Continent? One of the most fascinating kind of press conferences I ever saw, actually. And actually, King Kong Bundy works his socks off in this match. He's not a big brawling, but he is a big brawler. Or, you know, you compare this to his Hogan run in WWF, and he's actually going for arm bars and flying head scissors. He's not the big brawler that you expect him to be. This is a technical profession wrestling match, arguably more technically proficient than anything we've seen on the first card. And that's what makes this fascinating for me. Yeah, I, I've got to fully agree. I was not expecting this type of match when I first saw like Kevin Von Erich versus King Kong Bundy on the card. And I was just like, okay, so this is going to be a monster brawl. And it's like, oh my God, what is King Kong Bundy doing? Holy shit, look at him move. I, he genuinely catches you off guard because you're like, well, damn, King Kong Bundy came to work. Look, <laughs> he did. It he was. Did. It's very good. It is very, very good. He also did not like get frustrated right until the end of the match when he ended up going disqualified. Um, but yeah, this is a proper wrestling match. You realise how stiff Kevin Von Erich is as well. <laughs> There's potato oh, shots yeah, flying that, everywhere. That's not up for debate. That's not up for debate anymore. Jesus Christ. <laughs> there were genuinely people would not sign to wrestle in Dallas because of Kevin Von Erich and other members of the roster because they hit really hard. Um, some people thought it was actually a shoot. That's how, like, within the wrestling industry, not fans, all these fans thought it was a shoot. But they actually thought members of the wrestling industry were like, yeah, not going down to Dallas. Far too much trouble for where it's worth, which is why you didn't see some people who wrestled in the north an awful lot didn't like working down there because of the stiffness of it. Um, though arguably, you know, similar things were happening in the Carolinas too. Um, but yeah, this is uh, it is stiff, really stiff. But that's kind of what gives Texas its kind of appeal, isn't it? That is, it's a big brawler's territory, even though this was a fairly technically orientated match. You know, it was still came down to strikes and big ass submissions. Of course, the big move maneuver for Kevin, which is really over, is the claw. That's the that's the maneuver that really 
um, makes the fans go wild. And you get three people I trying to do that. the In every Von Erichs match, the battle for the claw, especially in like Fritz versus Kabuki from the last card, mm. just the dramatic, I am going to crush your skull with my hand type of deal. It just looks so cool. Like, I'm a sucker for claw moves. Always have been. But, like, the Von Eric claw and the dramatic way in which they always apply it and go to apply it, that is when I will allow something to be milked for its entire worth. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, it's patently ridiculous and clearly doesn't hurt. However, (laughs) however, the way it's developed... going to kill you yeah that's the whole point you know is like um i can't remember the carry out a feud with somebody um in like 91 in world class uh, it was part of member of devastation incorporated but he had his claw and the battle of the claws and that was amazing you know it was it's um it's still an over kind of uh finisher because you can do so much with it the fans get to see everything, you know. It's not like a figure four that requires a bit of setup. It's easy to apply. You can get it on quickly, or you can make it go and slow and be dramatic. I did like the finish here as well, uh, because um, Ken Mantel, who's the referee, gets run over by um, uh, King Kong Bundy, essentially. gets pulled in the way. And so Bundy gets disqualified, and that's the end of the match. And we just don't see that anymore. You know, it's just, it's the way it should be. You know, it's just like, well, if you've got hit by a wrestler and he's purposely pulled you in the way, it's like if, like, Red Shoes and Matthias Matthias Army, like, enforced the same rules in New Japan Pro Wrestling, House of Torture wouldn't win any matches. They don't anyway. Well, well, true, they don't anyway. Just enough to be annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, I'm wondering if they, you know, they, they did stress how much they lost an awful lot um, in, the, in the last two tournaments. So David Mercer then um, explains what's going on in the next match, which is the World's Heavyweight Championship match and the build-up to the World's Heavyweight Championship match. As Kerry gets a, a, a disqualification win over... Well, no, he he won by disqualification over Ric Flair uh, when Ric Flair pulled the referee out of the way again. And, of course, Flair keeps the belt on uh, on uh, the disqualification ruling because you can't win the end of the World's Heavyweight Championship on the disqualification, as I've explained before <laughs> This in this particular show. And this is your main event, but it's not the last match on the show, obviously, because we're going we're gonna to have to do something else after this. Um, but you get to... Flair versus um, Kerry in a cage at Reunion Arena, and this is intense. This is this isn't Flair at his full pomp. This is his first title reign, and he admits he wasn't at his best work. He was feeling the pressure, but this is just about perfect. Like the delivery of this storyline, and Flair's job here is to get Kerry over as being able to carry the world's heavyweight championship. Make him look like a million dollars. Everyone has a job in this match. Michael Hayes' job is to be that physical presence, but be fair, which to be fair to Michael Hayes, he is fair all the way through the match up until he gets frustrated. And Kerry has to do the job of being 
the constant pressure babyface pushing up against the veteran champion flair and keeping that crowd at a fever pitch. And they do an exceptional job. There's four referees in this match, two on the outside, two on the inside. The presentation of it is really, really well done. And what I like about it is it's not perfect. It's scrappy and chaotic. And when the angle does come, essentially Flair runs Kerry into Michael Hayes, who bangs his head on the cage door, and Terry Gordy turns on Kerry Von Eric at the end of the match by slamming the cage door in his face. It's not straight, straight up and down and, you know, it's not clean. And you don't quite understand what's going on because that's what would happen in real life. You know, if you, like your friends, your best friends just turned on you like that, it would be chaotic. And that's what makes it so believable and so great. And I'm just looking at this before I start and all of the fans coming up to ringside to get Polaroids of Kerry and, you know, the staff having to get them back to sit down again before the match starts because they know it's going to be rough. And it's such an atmosphere when you watch this. Even now, you can tell 40 years later something special was going on in this match. Yeah, I genuinely again sort of had a I'm not low expectations but I didn't expect it to be quite as intense as it actually was there's I don't really know what else to add you kind of summed it up perfectly I was just happy with the amount of blood that got spilled because <laughs> <laughs> they're not exactly taking the sort of stereotypical cage hits they are just full on getting thrown at it it's not it's not pretty. It, it, no, there are some not. very heavy impacts into that metal. I think Flair was probably feeling the pressure at this point. You know, he was... It was a year before um, he would... I mean, I'm trying to think. When would he lose the title to... Let me have a look at this. I'm trying to think when he lost the title here because he was... Um, <laughs> I've just reminded who's the 100th NWA World's Heavyweight Champion is. <laughs> and like, Ugh, the current one. Anywho, where was I? Um, yeah, Flair wins the title in A1. So he's halfway through his reign. So he's feeling the pressure as champion. He admits it was not his best work. The second reign is when he's really hit his stride. But it's a lot younger flair than what we're used to. And this is not your standard flair match, which, to be fair to Rick, he did kind of fall into that trap of having the standard flair match by the late 80s. It's reactionary. It's a hot crowd. It's absolute breakneck pace from bell to bell. There's very few rest holes in this concerning, you know, two submission style wrestlers. They just go, go, go. And what could you what more could you want from a main event that's probably scheduled to go 40 minutes? I'm not sure how long it goes. It does go for a very long time. I'm going to skip to 24 minutes. 24 minutes. Yeah, yeah, 24 minutes and 33. It's it's just really well done. It's just like it's it's not a Mac classic in the sense, but then it's Kerry, and Kerry isn't about Mac classics. Kerry's about creating moments, isn't he? He's kind of very much an archetypical WWE wrestler now. Like they're not. They're not necessarily great storytellers, though this does tell a great story. Carries a gifted and talented professional wrestler, but he's not the consummate map professional that Ric Flair is at this point. So 
it's two competing narratives. You know, Kerry's looking for the moment, Flair's looking to survive. And that's really, you know, the story of the match. And then you have this fairy dust that is Michael Hayes. Sorry? Oh, that was just a funny description. It is, but, you know. <laughs> it's accurate. It just caught me by surprise. I, I, I could say other things about Michael Hayes, but this is a family show. Um, <laughs> I think things have been said about Michael Hayes in the past that have not been very complimentary and fully deserved as well. Um, but, you know, it's the same as anything else. You know, he's been a jerk down the years, but no one ever denied his ability as a talker and his ability to get heat. And this is his prime. This is his key thing. You know, he actually said on Twitter this weekend, like, he couldn't believe it's 40 years since this happened. And, you know, but it is. And it's 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 a remarkable thing when you look back at it now. How much money did the Von Erics and the Freebirds make for the next three years? And when the Von Erics weren't in town, when they were off touring, it was the Freebirds who were the biggest baby faces in Texas. It wasn't the Freebirds turned heel so much. It's just that they weren't as popular as the Von Erics. <laughs> There you go. Anywho. And then, of course, we have to end with another battle royale. Of course we do. There's only three matches on this card. Um, and we've talked about the six-man tag team championships. We'll move on to the end. We'll flick to the end of that because it does go on for quite some time. And the, the main event, funnily enough, is, is this battle royale, which is the one is third from the end. Because, <laughs> of course, what you want to do is put that kind of mess on third from the end i suppose like you well they they need an interval while the the cage match was on i suppose okay setting the cage up so in this particular do you want to do you want to um shall i read out the um the participants or do you want to have a go at it because you're always like this okay so we've got to put a dramatic voice on it has to be dramatic okay this was a uh battle royal battle royal poll match for 50 or 100,000. I think it was $5,000 in the end. Wasn't it $10,000? Someone said 10,000 and someone said 5,000. I'm sure it floated. And the people involved were Ken Mantell, Al Madrill, Ben Sharp, Bill Irwin, Brian Adias, Bugsy McGraw, checkmate, David Von Erich, Frank Dusick, Jose Lothario, King Kong Bundy, Mike Sharp, and Tom Steele. The obvious thing to do with three guys, yeah, Dave Von Erich, did triple duty on this show. <laughs> Why? Why is he wrestling? I'm not sure he's in this match. I mean, look at it. Yeah, again, Dan Jordine, the spoiler, is again not mentioned in the listings, but he's in this match. Um, but yeah, David Von Eric's in there. Yeah. There's a couple of names that I kept hearing that aren't on the list, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Cage match isn't, isn't um, infallible, unfortunately, but there you go. It's pretty damn good, though. We're lucky to have it as a resource. It's probably more a case of, like, there were names that were meant to be there, and then they were just like, oh, come on then, you get in this as well. You were here, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. The basic way this worked was, it was a standard battle royal with pinfalls allowed until the last three men. Um, and then, after that, um, they were, they were they were allowed to climb the pole. Because the check was put on top of the pole. Um, 
and Ken Mantel won. I think it was Al Madrill and Ben Sharp with the last two with him. In which case, yeah, it was Ben Sharp. I think if it was Ben Sharp, then, um, oh yeah, Kelly Kaninsky, uh, Kelly Kaninsky, which was, yeah, Ben Sharp. Um, they were the last three to in the match, and it was perfectly fun for what it was. Um, but, but, yeah, not an awful lot else to say about it. Like, it feels out of place considering it proceed like it was preceded by the main event hyper dramatic cage match with one of the biggest wrestling plot points of the past forty years. True, you know it, it's a bit of a come down, and you know there's some big points in it. Bugsy McGraw eliminates King Kong Bundy, so there's a future feud for you um, being built up. Um, David Merritt goes out early and has a bit fight with other people. You know, Checkmate as well. Checkmate was kind of like Gary Hart's technical assassin. He was kind of the Zack Sabre Jr. of the promotion. So, of course, you stick him in a battle royal. <laughs> Seems a bit churlish. If you're a waste of talent, if you ask me. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just in the wrong place for a, t- for a TV show, isn't it? Why would you edit this together? It feels like if you were going to put anything here, I'd probably put the Texas heavyweight match. Yeah, definitely. I would have thought that would be more important, unless you didn't want to um, broadcast Bill Irwin losing because he had a championship match somewhere else at some point. I suppose that's a possibility. I suppose this is less high stakes and it gets somebody over who isn't particularly far up the card. So I suppose it works from that particular point. But there you go. And that concludes our kind of holiday edition of the Troopney show where we've looked at Dallas. I mean, the aftermath of this, obviously, like we said, is the Freebirds versus the Von Erics forever. <laughs> <laughs> Literally forever. You know, um, it's just the ideal um, pairing, like we said, you know, athletic guys hitting each other really hard and it it just just kind of like goes to show what you can do with the right guys in the right place some sensible booking presented with a bit of class and that was the Gary Hart way and he did it brilliantly and Fritz had enough sense to get out of his way um you know I'm sure Gary Hart knew what Fritz wanted and Gary put into play what what Fritz wanted for his promotion Have you got anything to say to close us out? Yeah, it's it's hard not to argue with that. It's it's genuinely an interesting promotion, done well. It knows its strengths, it knows its limitations, and it just makes it work. There's there's a lot of different things to enjoy, even if you know you don't see half of it because they have the weirdest sense of TV production. <laughs> it was early days, showed, I suppose. The matches they showed, for the most part, were pretty interesting, even if some were just the standard type of match. You had a massive range of characters, you had a massive range of personalities, and you had a lot of very heavy hitters, some of which happened to be barrels with limbs. (laughs) Which is your favourite kind of wrestler, as we've discovered. Some of them. Like, hey, mobility's overrated if you can just pummel (laughs) someone into the ground. 
<laughs> the Greg Valentine approach to professional wrestling. If someone could beat on me long enough, eventually I'd have a decent match. <laughs> yeah, if that's the way it looks. Some of the best deathmatch wrestlers are big guys who just so happen to also be very good at wrestling. You Ronnie Garvin. Your hood puts. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we talked about Ronnie Garvin. I've never seen a bad Ronnie Garvin match. I've only seen about four, but they've all been really good. And it's basically because he's short and stocky, he can hit people really hard. And he does that for 20 minutes. And he gets hit really hard. And that's that. <laughs> that's all that's going on, basically. It's like some just, of the best wrestling matches are just built on the un- understanding of mutual masochism. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like, I will hit you very hard. You hit me very hard. We'll both have fun. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the basic principle behind the dog collar match between Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine around this time period at, at Starcade 83, the following year, actually, uh, which Greg Valentine said, they just said, don't break the nose, don't break the teeth. That was the instructions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nose, ears, and teeth. Go for it. And that was that, you know. It's um, and this is kind of that kind of era, you know. It always amazes me when we get people now talking about how uh, people are working stiffer these days, and I like well, look at this. <laughs> this is just like a regular wrestling match, and they're leathering each other, and it's like, but it made it look real, you know. And it's the Texas loop wasn't that big, I suppose. They did have more time off, and they were well paid for what they did. You know, this was one of the best, better paying promotions in the South. You know, Florida wasn't particularly well paid, but you had low taxes and a nice place to live and sunshine all year round. Texas wasn't like that. Or, you know, you were equally 18,000 every two months. They were making money, hand over fist and a loop that ran five days a week. You were always wrestling. You were always learning something new and you were always going up or down the card and finding new people to work with. And that's that's the way it worked, you know. It was it was a good it was a good promotion. What do you think of David Mercy as a commentator? I have nothing really to complain about. It was informative. He had energy, and he wasn't making stupid quips all the time. I also don't no, think that... he'd done any drugs. So <laughs> <laughs> true, absolutely true. Um, and. Neither would Mark Clarence, who was the ring announcer. He would also do, he did the TV tapings on, at the Sportatorium. He commentated on them, and Mercer did the studio show during the week. So there was like two shows. There was the TV taping on the Saturday morning, and there was another show later in the week, which was more of like a sit-down interview thing. You would, you would interview David Von Erich on the ranch with a shotgun across his lap, um, whereas Mark Clarence did play-by-play on the Sportatorium shows from the Saturday morning, and um, Laurence ended up, believe it or not, is now a Methodist minister. He has been a Methodist minister ever since World Class Championship Wrestling closed. He started off doing a general sports commentary for the local Dallas to Dallas station, news station. Um, someone said they needed an announcer for, for World Class Championship Wrestling. He went to do ring announcing, got promoted to be a TV commentator and, um, yeah, loved it. And, and he described in the documentary list and he says, nothing prepared me more for being a minister better than working for World Class Championship Wrestling because of the amount of experience I had dealing with people. So there you go. Do you want to go into the church? Be a wrestling commentator. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
got a bit of a double-edged sword. <laughs> Ted DiBiase, he runs a church. There you go. Harley Race ended up running a church too. Well, he wasn't running the church. He's the wrestling school that Harley Race ran was a lot of the money that they earned went to the local church that he was part of. Intriguing how people move into that part in their later life, I suppose. But yeah. I mean, at least they're doing it for the right reasons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's other people who've done it for the wrong reasons. Um, I'll not mention who. because Again, we're being positive. I'll tell you after. Anywho, but yes. Thank you very much for listening to Troopany Show today. Uh, my name's James Troopany. You can find me online at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. Um, I have a mastermind name, which I've not yet quite got my head around. Um, you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star TX on Instagram. You can find me on Grinder, uh, not Grinder, on um, oh. <sighs> Discord. That's the one. Why this Grinder came into my head? You can find me. Definitely can't find me on Grinder. You can find me on Discord. Um, um, as I'm on there somewhere, and the, well, the show's on there. It's called Trooping Show Podcast. Uh, you can find us on there, and you can find us on Facebook, the Trooping Show, and on Patreon, the Trooping Show, and of course on Twitter, the Troop or just Trooping Show. Uh, where can we find you on the internet, John? Follow me at John Deathman on Twitter, John underscore Deathman on Instagram, which is like the backup for the Twitter where you'll find all my work, <laughs> writings, opinions. Nice screenshots from the matches I write up. And you can find me on Patreon at Deathmatch Digest. That will give you a nice mix of paid for and free content reviewing deathmatches and full-on deathmatch shows. This week I've talked about Bruiser Brody and last week there was a trio of deathmatch reviews all available for free looking at the weekend's ICW shows featuring Abdullah Kobayashi and a full rundown of the Texas Deathmatch Massacre 2. So if you haven't had your fill of Texas wrestling yet, go over to the Patreon and read all about how Texas has deathmatches. It does, very much so, and always has. Thank you very much for listening today. We'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye.